Welcome to the Sacred Emergence Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Wong, and I'm so thrilled that you're here. This is a place where you'll be guided to living your most aligned life so that your truest, most radiant self can emerge. We'll be jamming on topics ranging from spirituality, entrepreneurship, to wellness and lifestyle design, and everything in between that can support you to grow, evolve, and shine, all the while not taking ourselves too seriously. So if you're ready to step into your leadership, break through limiting beliefs, own all of who you are, and expand in abundance, grab yourself your faith cup of tea, and let's dive in. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Sacred Emergence, and today I have a special guest with uh, Mary DeYoung, who is an eco-theologian, and uh, Mary and I met um, at Camp Soldas. So you've heard me talk about Camp Soldas in the past, and I just adored Mary the moment I met her. Um, Mary, welcome to the show. It's so great to be with you today, Michelle. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm just so excited to have you because I feel like the work that you do is so unique, so needed. And until I met you, I didn't know this type of work really existed. Um, Like, yeah, I've gone on hikes, I've gone on nature walks, you know, herb walks um, to really get in touch with nature. But the way you do it, it just, it really shifted my relationship to nature and how I see nature, um, how I interact with it. And it was, I was like, the work that you do is just so special. So yeah. It was a privilege to guide you on those early morning walks. I mean, if I remember remembering correctly at Camp Soldust, I was asked to wake up early with the birds and prepare this early morning experience in the woods where we kind of blessed our senses and opened them up as kind of portals to what I would say a sacred presence within the wild world. And, um, and we had tea together, right? That was like, yeah, it was so good. And the tea that you made was fresh that morning and you forged it on the path. I was like, I didn't know that's possible. <laughs> and yet, didn't it also feel like kind of a coming home? Like, oh, while I might not have intellectually remembered that or knew about this, there's this deeper sense of, yeah, but and yet I do know. I do mm-hmm. know that this is kind of how we're meant to be with the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, well, how would you describe eco-theologian? Sure. So my, um, my training is as a theologian. So, I mean, we could go to Latin and, you know, theo is God and ology is the, you know, the study of. So I went to seminary and received, um, my master's in theology and culture in, in theology, but my particular area of study was in what would be a very small um, area of study called eco-theology. And that is within the Judeo-Christian tradition um, and more in really kind of an open faith paradigm where we are looking at how land ecology is in conversation with soul formation and kind of the spirit. And this is really kind of a return back to traditional knowing um, that uh, holy mystery is wholly present here on this plane in our terrestrial realm. And I mean, a lot of the Judeo-Christian tradition would have taught that 
the idea of God, the concept of God is removed from this sphere, from this domain and, you know, resides wholly in the heavens. And so an eco-theological worldview is kind of taking to task some of the teachings within that tradition and seeing how they're kind of complicit with um, um, kind of how the Western mind has created this illusion of separation and has caused such ecological damage. And so by taking that to task, we're inviting a broader conversation of how do we return then to these traditional ways of knowing that are really quite universal, that um, the world is filled with the divine presence and mm. we are meant to be in kind of a, yeah, that a relationship here. I mean, it would even invite um, seeing the, the holy world as scripture. So the Celtic tradition is a particular stream of spirituality within which I practice and have studied for over 25 years. It's my maternal lineage, um, but through that particular way of understanding the natural world, it would actually say that nature is scripture. In fact, it might even be the primary scripture that for billions and billions of years before the writing apparatus was ever developed, there was the capacity um, for the holy to be um, communicated through the natural world. So trees and mountains and, and water all had its own ability to communicate, i.e. write, or you know be text to to be read to experience um sacred presence mm. that's kind of how i would it's a long-winded explanation i guess of how i would describe eco theology eco theology like whenever you like it's just poetry when i hear you talk about like our connection to nature and just how nature is scripture i'm like like that sense of truth like i feel that you know and I think like um, even going on your retreat, it was like the message was like, we need to quiet down, slow down so that we can sense what the world is trying to tell us, like natural world, um, which is so easy to miss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it absolutely is easy to miss because we live in a culture that's designed to have us miss it. Um, um, and these are going to be some kind of broad, large kind of meta categories of conversation, but um, it's very hard to be a consumer um, when you are so tuned into the natural world and even more so an animate natural world. So that would be a, um, a nature community that is alive mm. and full of, full, full of, um, anima so full of spirit full of soul and ensouled world even would be how some people kind of imagine the world that in which we live you cannot consume that world as an object or as a resource and so so much of our you know western world is designed to ensure that we continue a um a way of seeing the more than human world actually is how i would prefer to frame it as, as an object that we can, that just supports our human life. Mm. And it's so much more than that. And I believe truly that when we begin to open up our, 
our senses, you know, our, our eyes, our ears, our taste, you know, our, our skin, even our, our sixth sense, our ability to see into the invisible spaces, um, we begin to hear a, a very ancient way of, of speech. I mean, this is the speech of the wild. And it's the speech, I think, that we know deep, deep, deep down in our, in our bones, but we can't hear it if we're plugged in. Mm-hmm. We can't see it if there's always a two-dimensional screen in front of our face, right? And I'm keenly aware that this becomes interesting when we are using these mediums even in our conversation. These must simply be, though, the tools that further a connection beyond the virtual. And, um, yeah, and so I often will encourage people, you know, they're like, well, how, do I, how do I even reconnect? It's like, got to disconnect. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did your, your journey into um, studying this, like how did that come about? It's been a long, long journey, many, many, many years of, um, I think, trying to reconcile two different messages that I would have received as a young girl who grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical Christian environment that would have told me stories that the earth was fallen. This kind of comes out of the Judeo-Christian conservative tradition that there is, yeah, a sin, a sinful action that happened and the earth is now fallen and bad. Furthermore, so is my body, especially Mm -hmm. as a female body. So Mm -hmm. those are two stories that unfortunately have lived within this tradition for a long, long time. But I was fortunate enough um, to have a father who at that time was an atheist, so didn't believe a lick of any of those stories. <laughs> he was also a mountaineer and an amateur astronomer. And he would take me into the mountains like every other Sunday. You know, we'd have this rhythm of, you know, church on one Sunday and then ch- kind of church in the mountains. My dad would never call it that, but I intuitively knew that I was going to a sacred place and I knew it was sacred because the message that I was receiving about the earth body and my body was so remarkably different. I mean, in the mountains, I felt, I felt beautiful and powerful and courageous and brave and inherently good. And the mountains themselves felt holy. They felt like a cathedral. They didn't feel fallen. And so I really believe that from that kind of uh, dichotomy of two different stories, I have spent the better part of, I mean, years and years and years trying to reconcile these two stories and trying to get at, um, recover the wisdom, the the wisdom within my tradition, um, and also kind of naming these dysfunctional narratives that aren't serving any human body well, and furthermore, uh, complicit with climate warming and climate catastrophe. And by naming a story that's dysfunctional, the great invitation is how do we recover the functionality of it? You know, how do we make it um, healthy and whole? 
So um, I've been, yeah, on a long journey of, you know, various attempts at seminary and then also raising a family. So I'm bivocational in that way. I have four beautiful children and have tried to do my studies alongside of uh, a growing family. Um, but always this really kind of burning desire to articulate um, a response to the dysfunction of the stories we tell within sacred contexts and the impact on the earth body. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's led me through, yeah, a lot of great opportunities to learn and um, yeah, ultimately really train as a theologian and in that context I really try to do work that bring people back into their bodies by reconnecting them to their bioregion. So mm. that really, I think, is what kind of makes my work interesting and a lot of yeah. fun. How, um, like, connecting with the bioregion, like, have you noticed, like, the types of shifts that come about with the people that you work with? Like, when they, when they do that work, like, what's the, the transformation? Yeah. Well, there's, there's deep wisdom to the saying that um, you cannot know who you are until you know where you are. And we have been, I think, been given a lie when we've been told that where we are doesn't matter, that we can be anywhere. And, um, and I think that serves a purpose to a degree. It can absolutely serve um, very unique vocational opportunities and um, certainly travel is amazing. And yet where we are is important. And so this bioregional attunement, getting to know again the places where we reside becomes an invitation into not only knowing landscape, um, I, I live in the Pacific Northwest in the kind of the greater Seattle area. So this is the, the land of the Duwamish, um, the Duwamish tribe. This becomes an invitation into a deep knowing of landscape through, through story and traditional presence. And as someone who comes from a settler lineage and ancestry, it is my it is now my job to posture myself as one who learns, learns from land and learns from the traditional presence that's here. And that becomes a really vulnerable, wonderful, wild place to be. So I think what I have witnessed both in myself and with others, when they begin to reconnect to where they are, is they begin to open up their soul formation to to other and now other i'm going to invite you to imagine that as a capitalized o so this is anyone other than ourself right self with a capital s and when you are in when yourself is in conversation with other you begin to posture yourself you are invited into the posture of what is called an I-thou relationship. This is um, this comes from the philosophy of Martin Buber, who was a Jewish philosopher and had an incredible insight into how we move through the world as an I. I am fully I. But our I often requires something else to be an it. So I am I in so much as whoever it is who's apart from me or next to me or sitting in front of me is an it. 
Okay. So, but here, 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 the move here, because um, that it is always going to be an objectified um, object. That's redundant, but okay. So the, an object who you can dominate Mm. And for too long, the Western mind and our identity has um, been in response to having an it relationship with anyone who stands in front of us. When we are postured in an I-thou relationship, anyone in front of us becomes a holy other. It becomes a thou. And when we are able to see the natural world, our bioregions as a thou, the holy presence, sacred presence, it inverts our entire paradigm of how we live. You can no longer steward land or be even on land. And even here in that, um, the posture of oppression, you can only steward a thing or an object. You can only be on land if you see it as, um, as a resource or a right upon which you can be. But when you begin to see land and the world, the bioregion in which you live as in this I thou paradigm, it begins to open up insight in phenomenal ways. Furthermore, it begins to develop this conversation. Um, And I think ultimately that's what prayer is. Prayer is conversation. And when I am seeing the tree in my backyard or in my neighborhood forest as a vow, I begin to invite conversation and I allow myself to become a listener and a learner from, from the place. And it, this, yeah, again, the shift is significant because mm-hmm. um, it's a worldview shift. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that that's what the world is needing. And I'm, I'm mindful that even our conversation right now is, um, it's coming right before a week of really intense climate strikes that are being led by youth all over the world who are so attuned to the fact that the future is demanding we live and be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of what gets exciting about this work is it's um, coming alongside of, you know, personal and um uh, collective actions that we can be taking in our lives. Um, you know, green new deals are emerging all over the place. Um, but our soul also needs kind of a a green new deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that this begins to get at that, that we will live different upon this earth in so much as we're living by a different story. And so we need a story that reconnects us to the holiness of our places. Yeah. Hmm. That is so good. And like, as you were talking, like even it just reminded me like, cause you know, I've like, I'm still learning. And so it's like, oh yeah, like I can converse differently with the trees. It's not just this beautiful thing that's growing from the ground. Like I can be in conversation with it rather than just, um, I don't know, like whenever I go on hikes and stuff, it's like, oh yeah, this is a beautiful tree, but it's like, I don't necessarily talk to it. Like not you know, it's like, it's a, it shifts the conversation and the relationship with what you were saying of like the soul wanting a shift as well. Yeah. Yeah. The soul needs a shift because, um, I mean, again, this is, it's riffing off of the idea of conversation. You're in conversation with another subject 
and um, to to think that um, the world is soulless um, again would allow us to continue to objectify the world, but there is a deep, deep wisdom and tradition that lives within the idea of the anima mundi. And so this is the idea of the spirit of the world, the soul of the world, that the world is ensouled as just as we are. And, um, you know, even within kind of a sacred evolutionary uh, paradigm, if we, if we believe, and well, science affirms this, that we evolved up and out of the earth. We evolved up and out of an ensouled earth. And um, we then were made to be in conversation, um, essentially with ourselves, right? I mean, if we evolved out of the earth, the earth is very much like an external um, body of our own interior world. So that gets really interesting. So that even when we're acknowledging and perceiving a tree, there's something within our soul that is resonating with that tree. Mm-hmm. It's like the forest within sees the forest without, you know, mm-hmm. beyond. And um, that's some of the work that I do is helping people begin to kind of recover an internal soulscape that identifies with these. Uh, varieties of bioregional topographies and we do that through kind of myth work and and story work um even land-based work because we have become so digitized and technology has put screen after screen in front of our face faces um it becomes uncommon to see the tree or uncommon to see the mountain it takes deep intention to get out of our kind of modern worlds to, you know, as you have the privilege to do, to go to the mountain and see those trees. Their presences are felt very much here in our urban context, even. I mean, Seattle's very beautiful and we're arranged in such a way that you can see the beauty of our bioregion. And yet um, to really have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the streams that run through our city or even attuned to the streams that run beneath the sidewalks. Um, That begins to, it begins a a practice of hearing deeper into our own soulscape or through, through our bioregional landscapes. Yeah. There was um, something that you said, I think during one of our hikes, um, that like even before we see maybe the tree or even like if it was a stone on the ground that like it already saw us before we saw it. Like, I just love that. Isn't that a, yeah, that's again, one of the shifts in how we understand ourselves to move through the world in a human centric world. uh, It's of course very common to believe that we are the locus of all the energy of all the things. All the things happen because of us. So, and that, that would be how we would describe um, noticing. Like, I noticed you, Michelle. I noticed the tree. I, I, right? The locus of energy comes from myself, kind of my ego. So the switch happens when we uh, grant the more than human world their own, their own agency, their own animate value. And we begin to realize that maybe when we are noticing that tree, 
it's because the locus of energy is coming from that tree. So I like to kind of invite this, um, this shift by um, using the example of maybe you're in a crowded room at a party or I don't know, at a bar or something, and you feel someone's gaze on you. I mean, we've all had this experience. You feel, you perceive someone's gaze on you and you turn around and yeah, there's someone looking at you. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between perception and noticing. I didn't notice someone looking at me. I perceived a gaze and then I turned around and sure enough, there was someone's eyes on me. So the invitation then is to take that same sort of feeling that kind of felt sense out into the more than human world. And so when you notice a tree, it's actually maybe you're perceiving the tree. Maybe the reason you're turning to, you know, kind of gaze in awe and wonder at this wild one is because their gaze was already on you. I and love that's that. really fabulous. And it's, it's mm-hmm. fabulous because of this. A wise one has said that we were meant to be seen by a thousand eyes. Mm. And one of our greatest griefs when we arrive in this world, especially our current modern world, is that this meant forness, this meant forness to be seen by a thousand eyes, has been reduced and reduced and reduced to hopefully, we hope now in our context, that there's the gaze of two loving parents, maybe, on the eyes of this newborn that comes into the world. That is a severe reduction from what should have been the village, Mm. the village eyes. And beyond the village, the eyes of all of the more than human ones who would have surrounded that village awaiting the birth of this one. So those are the thousand eyes that we're meant to be seen by. And so a grief that we carry um, is knowing that we're not being seen. And then our relationships subsequently get taxed. And I think unfairly so when we continue to live our lives with the demand that these primary sets of eyes, maybe nuclear family, um, primary relationships, are the ones who are supposed to see us fully and see us all the time and celebrate us. And and we feel hurt when we're not seen well. Mm-hmm. Our relationships suffer. Um, David Abram is an eco-philosopher whose work I have just benefited so much from has, has really played with the idea that perhaps one of the reasons why we have such high divorce rates, especially in America where the Western mind is at, is at its greatest hubris is because we have completely separated ourselves from any sort of interrelationship with all of the wild ones. And so if we were to have a spectrum of kind of our relational capacity, we end up uh, stacking all of that relational capacity on these, these very small few human relationships. Right. But if we were to expand the potential for how we can have our emotional selves be met and seen to all of these wild ones who are still waiting for us to notice <laughs> that they're here and they've been, mm. um, I think waiting for us to see them since we were born. Yeah. Um, there's huge potential for our own health and wellness right there. Yeah. Like as you were talking about that, cause like right now with my knee injury, it's like, 
it's like I, I I have to put myself out there and like so I have to remind people like hey like <laughs> I need help and sometimes it, it can feel like not that I'm alone or that it's lonely but it's like um, it's really nice to hear when people like check in mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it could be like well I haven't heard from this person what's going on like it could be like I can get into my head but just you saying like there's you know the the non-human was that more than human the more than human um it's like i have so many greenery outside my window it's like all these trees and they're greeting me and i have the clouds and the water and the mountains it's like they're right there (laughs) yeah so it's just even that is such a good reminder yeah and so right so they're seeing you they're you're perceiving them because their gaze is on you right outside of that window and while they might not be able to do your grocery shop for you they'll absolutely they are absolutely there to support you in other ways in your healing journey and to invite them to um, participate in some of those roles could be a really exciting um, opportunity that is for you in this healing journey Mm. yeah that's just that's even fun even like just me looking out at the trees now it's like oh like I see you and you see me (laughs) so yeah and then the deeper inquiry could be, um, how can you help me today? Mm, I love that. Will you help me? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love and that. Open yourself to seeing, because they will. They will. But it's going to be, again, they'll speak with a different language, right? It's not, um, and it might be heard more from here mm-hmm. than um, the auditory. I, I often am in my backyard standing quiet, much to my children's chagrin, because I'll make them be quiet too. I'll be like, Mom, what are you doing? Like, I'm listening. I'm just mm-hmm. listening. And I have, oh, I mean, I'm really grateful. I can, I can think of really hundreds and hundreds of times over the years being with any one or four of my children where we are standing there in silence listening and I absolutely am getting impressions and am hearing into what I would call my homescape you know this this landscape that creates my home and my children will tug at me and they'll be like well, what are you hearing what are you what are you hearing and they don't need much coaching to for them just to silence themselves and begin to kind of center in and the I'll invite them to start listening with me and they'll be like, Oh, I think I just heard this. I think I just heard this. And it can just be little things like, um, I think this plant wants to be moved over here. That's what she just told me. Or um, some sort of delightful, um, like my daughter, I've had this experience with her where she'll get really quiet and I'll ask her, you know, well, what, what are you hearing? Yeah. And I've had beautiful, profound responses but always simple, but where she'll express, um, you know, love or a, a message of affirmation mm-hmm. and or delight that you know this this tree likes me today. Like, how profound is that? That's huge, right? Yeah, we want to be affirmed, mm-hmm. and if we can get to into a place and into a relationship and into a conversation where we are receiving that affirmation from the tree using this example won't we not want to do better to protect that tree and uh be an advocate for that tree um be in solidarity with that tree and um 
I think that's where for our times in particular, this work is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing gross scale deforestation globally. And yeah. And that's certainly that can be really hard to hold and even hard to comprehend. But even in Seattle, we are seeing the largest levels of deforestation in recorded history because of the masses of massive amount of development that's happening. Yeah. And I wanted to touch upon like eco grief, like what, cause there's a lot of that. And it's sometimes like, like I even hear of that term until more recently through working with you, but it's like when that word like eco grief, I'm like, I understood it through my body. Cause it's like, that's what I'm experiencing when I see trees getting cut down and like the 5g that's coming in, like all of like, it's like, it hurts. And sometimes I feel powerless in a way. Yeah. Powerless and maybe even a little bit hopeless. Mm. So how do we stay resilient um, and be a hopeful people in the face, in the face of um, witnessing such, such ecocide. And I think also what's really, it's really critical and really important um, to to come to terms with, especially with eco-grief and some of these kind of emerging, this emerging dialect or lexicon of new words that are associated with the particulars of our time. I think about solstasia um, or solstasia, which is, has had a really large, robust life and it's 13 years of kind of being coined. But this is, this is the concept um, that was written about by an Australian kind of farm philosopher, I think is what he calls himself, a philosopher, but with farm in the front, farm philosopher. <laughs> um, Albrecht is his last name. Um, his book's not, his book's somewhere else in my house right now. Um, but the idea that we are losing the, so- the solace that we would have found from our homelands um, as they are being degraded um, for development and for, you know, fossil fuel removal. And it's this sense of, of a loss of home while we're still in the place that we live. So it's different than um, maybe being like that nostalgic sense that, that you might have when you're homesick. Um, Solstasia is that homesickness while you're still at home because mm. everything is changing so rapidly in front of you. So what I want to get at with that is the reality that this eco grief has lived for a very, very long time, um, especially for indigenous and traditional populations. So while in our modern time, we are awakening to these feelings in new ways as the homes that we have constructed are being demolished homes being the the bioregions in which we live, I'm keenly aware and I have a lot of grief in my heart as I connect to the reality that this is the lived experience of most Native Indigenous peoples around the world. As colonization, the Western world has, right, just gone out and and taken. And um, I think that's where there's a lot of interesting and hopeful work because in that in that realization that i i'll speak for myself that i am now feeling these feelings it invites solidarity in a way that perhaps i never had access to with the traditional communities indigenous communities like in my bioregion there is a a feeling of 
and it's and it breaks my heart and I think it breaks a lot of hearts as we begin to get to this place of I didn't see before mm-hmm. how my being here is a result of your own eco grief for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so it gets it gets deeply I mean this is our the deep work that this time invites us to mm-hmm. but it's healing work and that's I think where there's hope um, as we heal our relationship with our landscapes and the landscapes begin to heal us, we are invited to broaden that into healing relationships with um, various cultures, you know, that have been at, have been unfortunately at odds for, for so long because of the division of the mind. You know, you can't live within the illusion of separation and have a interpersonal relationship with anything or anyone. So, um, I get a lot of hope in that. That's good. The hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, um, one of my questions then is, um, like what, what do we do about like what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it, just from talking to you, it sounds like it's doing that inner work so that we can show up with respect, mm-hmm. um, and start to change the dynamic and the relationship that we have. Um, and what else would you suggest? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it gets interesting because I, I, I think that we are now currently living in a time where we, we might be not moving towards a flourishing future. Mm-hmm. And how does that look and live within us with that sort of kind of dire reality? I mean, these are the conversations that are happening at the UN next week. This is what Greta Thunberg, um, the Swedish youth activist, is, is truthfully prophesying that we might not be having a flourishing future for all anymore. So, right. So how do we practice living still in a hopeful way or living in a healthy whole way in that context, in that reality? And I, I would say then that um, these practices of, of ceremony, practices of ritual that bring us back into relationship with the land, if anything is a way of accompanying well accompanying ourselves well and even hear me when i'm saying now that we've we've already established that we are seeing the the wild world as a holy thou so a subject in their own right um maybe we are even accompanying one another to whatever this omega point is this whatever this end is and the end might very well just be the cracking open of a brand new beginning um ram das talks about we're all just walking each other home Mm. but we've forgotten that we are walking with the wild ones too. We've, we've really taken that as a very anthropocentric um, view that we're, we as humans are walking ourselves right. home. And we as humans might be the ones walking off this cliff, but there are a host of other more than human ones who are walking with us. So maybe we are, the hope is in just retrieving and reconnecting to a relationship that allows us, to walk the trees home Mm. or maybe them walking us home. And does it even 
that feel, you can feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I kind of get a Lord of the Rings image <laughs> in my mind of the ants, right? Yeah. Treebeard carrying, carrying the, the hobbits in Treebeard's arms. And that really kind of gets at this accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Because they were in that, in that mythic epic story walking to the end of their known world. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going to be on the other side. So what if we allowed the wild to accompany us? Um, I mean, it, it shifts again. It's, it's shifting that power. Um, and, it's, and it's shifting the locus even of the sacred. The sacred resides in that tree. It's not just in me. I really love that. Mm-hmm. Me too. And um, and one of the pieces that um, that I had stayed with me, um, especially when I was on your day retreat, it was the summer one, the summer rewilding. Um, it was like asking for permission, like if I'm going to pick up a stone, if I'm going to pick up a twig, like just kind of check in, like can I pick you up? Is it okay? And like, sometimes I would forget. And after a while, I'm like, this thing does not want to be held. So I like, let it go. And it's just like, that shifted a lot. It shifted my relationship. So that was, that was good. Yeah. Well, it's like the consent culture even extends going to the wild, but just yeah. as our, our relationships, our human relationships benefit from the courtesy of consent, so too do all these other ones um, because otherwise we, we take more than we need and we need more than we would ever need to take. And it, um, again, it's this practice of posturing ourselves differently and it's, it's reworking this script that's in our mind that says that we are, as humans are entitled um, all of this world is a stage upon which the human drama plays out. Um, it's a resource for human needs. Um, our yeah. interrelationship absolutely impacts our health and our wholeness and the beauty of our lives. Um, but it should never strip the integrity and the inherent value of the life force that's within all of the more than human world. It's, we can be in mutual relationship and both, and both benefit. Yeah, I um, the image that comes to mind is that image that you shared at um, the retreat of like the kind of like the pyramid, like with the man on the top and like, mm-hmm. you know, reigning over versus like that circle. That's like everything is interdependent. Yeah. And it's not a hierarchy, but it really is like it's a circle. It's a, like a sphere or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's, a, it's a, kind of the two paradigms of. Um, kind of an ego centered, um, great chain of being image where all of the the world is structured in such a way that has, yeah, humanity on top. And even in that image, when we, I think we all agreed that most likely that was a white male on top. Right. right? And everything else exists to serve that energy and an ecological worldview or um, yeah, kind of this eco worldview would have us have the circle and we are all occupying very important niches um, within that circle, but it's all, it's kind of a flat structure. It's a a circular structure. You know, the org chart doesn't have anyone on top and the, uh, the value then that, that allows for every life to have is profound. 
Uh, yeah, like I, um, yeah, that, that was really, just seeing that was good, just the visual. Um, and just knowing that you're here to do your work, it, it's like, okay, like there's someone who's like leading, <laughs> who's leading this work. Um, and I'm curious, like how can people learn more about working with you? And I know you offer so many wonderful opportunities. So I would love for you to share. Thank you for allowing me to do so. Yeah, so you could find my my work kind of lives in the realm of waymarkers.net. And waymarkers itself, I think it deserves a little bit of a story. I won't take too long, but um, waymarkers comes from the exilic tradition that comes out of um, Hebrew scripture in the book of Exodus. There was a people in that, in the story of Exodus that, were trying to find their way home and they got lost for a really, really long time. And they wandered for a long, long time, always trying to find home. And they were instructed in this story to set up way markers as ways to find their way home. And what gets interesting to me is in Hebrew, way markers is translated as stones or trees. Mm. So what I like to play with in that sense is that, um, I help, I accompany people in finding the stones and the trees that will guide them home. And oh, ultimately, home, I really, this is the work, is here, that we belong here. If we believe that our home is in the heavens, or believe any sort of theology that says that there's going to be another earth coming anyways, well, that's very problematic. <laughs> we won't serve our time well. We won't serve this earth well in that, in that paradigm. So, so way markers then um, exist to um, kind of provide the space where I, I do a lot of local retreats, these rewilding retreats. Um, and I do those over on Whidbey Island and they're wonderful. Those are quarterly offerings. And then I also lead women on um, the archetypal pilgrimage journey. So I've been deeply formed and influenced by Joseph Campbell and depth psychology of Carl Jung. And, um, hold a journey space for women to go through kind of this archetypal heroine's journey um, to the, to the Isle of Iona, which is considered the birthplace of Celtic spirituality. So if that interests you, um, we're doing a trip in June, 2020 there. And um, I, I also work as a, what I would call a private soul guide. So this is kind of eco spiritual accompaniment where um, I am with others who might be having deep deepening questions of the sacred, the divine God and bringing in the wild, bringing in the trees and the wind and the sun, um, the birds into how we begin to discern um, the great work in our life and how we are meant to bring our life energy into the world and into this time. So Mm, awesome the things that I do yeah yeah and you also have the monthly rewilding thank you yeah. yeah so out of um I have a the, the rewilding uh retreats are kind of based on um a wheel that I call the rewilding wheel and this is a a wheel practice so if you're not familiar with kind of uh maybe some indigenous cultures have the medicine wheel and various kind of round circular sacred ways of understanding the seasons the four directions and the elements. And what I'm doing with the rewilding wheel is, um, is looking to that traditional wisdom 
and kind of layering with that uh, other circular forms of knowing, like, like the pilgrimage round, like the heroine's journey, as well as kind of our bio, this idea of this bioregional awareness, this perception of place. And um, so there's a community that's growing out of the rewilding wheel and um, there's a monthly um, group that kind of gathers around these ideas and I send out resources and materials to really, I hope the intention is to generate new ways of seeing and thinking about one's locatedness and, um, and, and placement ultimately. So I would call that sacred bioregional work and you're part of that, Michelle. And I think it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of good learning, a lot of good kind of deconstructing and reconstructing of how we are placed. Yeah. And um, even like the, the monthly email that get, that you send out, I mean, I, it's like, I need it with a cup of tea. I read it because it's just poetry and there's so many wonderful resources. Um, so even that on its own is, is just so beautiful. And it's just, it's, and it's a reminder for me to like, okay, like I have to make, make time for this. Um, and it's like, it's an intentional effort for me to carve out time and then just to sit and read it, you know, and it's just, that's part of like the ritual in yeah. my opinion. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for your time and sharing your wisdom and your gifts. I, I adore you. Mm, this has been wonderful. Thank you for allowing me to share some of my learning. Um, I'm learning all of the time, so which I think is a really good place to be, um, dynamic in that way. And I enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody who's listening, uh, check out her work. Mary's amazing. And thank you so much. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Emergence podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And thank you in advance for sharing this with others who can benefit. Until next time.